My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's Sustainability Editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Do you mind if I move the microphone? I just, I need to lounge. <laughs> Devotion, darling. Shut I think as humans, we are major forces to be also reckoned with. And I think creativity always flourishes when there is any type of crisis. That's been the absolute pleasure, is watching talented people who have skills far and beyond mine come together and work collectively. Einstein always said, nature has all the answers. Just look to nature, it has all the answers. Just because I happened to be able to source them easiest, I guess, I was buying original wool jackets from the 1950s. I was buying them at Portobello Market. And a one man's rubbish is another man's gold. For me, it was about age. It was about the attitude of people. And it's about how they're wearing the clothes, why they're wearing the clothes, and capturing a bit of their wisdom and empowering people to look at aging differently. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. This is the second in our mini-series of three episodes that sheds light in different ways on the issue of modern slavery. It's another cracker of an interview, this time with the much-loved London-based fair trade fashion pioneer Safia Mini. If only all fashion supply chains were fair trade. The Global Slavery Index 2018, published by the Walk Free Foundation, identifies fashion as one of five key industries implicated in modern slavery. In Australia, every year we import over four billion US dollars worth of clothes and accessories at risk of being tainted by modern slavery. But as I mentioned in last week's show, about 40 million people globally are trapped in this heinous phenomenon that encompasses not just bonded or forced labour, but debt bondage, forced marriage and trafficking into many industries, including the sex trade. Overall, 71% of modern slaves are women. So this is a feminist issue across the board. This episode is brought to you by Liminal Apparel, a fair trade producer of blank clothing and accessories. And blank means merch or promotional t-shirts, hoodies or other clothing. They also make uniforms and things like aprons and tote bags and wristbands. All the stuff that companies can buy blank and then add their own branding. Liminal works with an NGO called Freeset to produce out of India. And Freeset began in the Sonagachi red light district of Kolkata, and the aim was to provide alternative work opportunities and freedom for women and girls there, but also to strengthen communities through skills-based training so that in future, girls are less likely to be trafficked into the sex industry. I reached out to Liminal because I know how much they care about this issue of modern slavery and about getting these stories out there. And they're my mates. I first met them when I was talking on a panel in Melbourne. And that's where I learnt about the significant blind spot in ethical and sustainable apparel that is blanks. I just never even heard of blanks, have you? But 
because they're unbranded and because some of this stuff when conventionally produced, so just think about that promo t-shirt, is basically designed to throw away and often made very cheaply and often made without much transparency because of the lack of branding. But Liminal and their new venture Common Good turn this whole story around completely. They make beautiful, cool and responsibly produced gear using GOTS certified organic cotton and they're all fair trade audited. So this stuff is good, but it also does good. It's a social enterprise. So if you're looking for blanks, whether it's clothing or tote bags, I reckon this is where you should go. And you can find them at liminal.org.au. And that's L-I-M-I-N-A-L.org.au. And also at www.common-good.world. And actually, Liminal produced the promo totes for Safia Mini's Slave to Fashion project, so that's a lovely tie-in. We recorded this conversation in London at Safia's head offices, from which she does quite a few different things. You no doubt know her from People Tree, the fair trade fashion business that she began in the early 90s. In 2015, I think, she stepped down as chief executive at People Tree, although she's still involved. But she's also now heading up this fair trade shoe brand called Pozu, and we'll hear all about that. Safia is in Andrew Morgan's doco, which I'm sure you've all seen. It's called The True Cost. And she's an MBE. She's an activist. She's spoken more than once at the World Economic Forum's meeting in Davos. So that's pretty impressive. Like once is impressive. Come on. She's the author of four books, including Naked Fashion, Slow Fashion and Slave to Fashion. And that last one explores fashion's uncomfortable relationship with modern slavery. And it was released on International Women's Day in 2017 as a campaign. So it had videos as well as the written word. The idea behind Slave to Fashion was to profile best practice brands and designers to prove that slave-free fashion is achievable and that fashion can be used to empower workers. You can find out more at safiamini.com and that's S-A-F-I-A hyphen mini M-I-N-N-E-Y. As always, dear listeners, thank you for lending me your ears. Do get in touch. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Mrs. Press and I do so love to hear from you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and our listeners, Safia Mini. I know that so many of our listeners love you. I've already had loads of Instagram messages going, she's my hero. <laughs> How sweet. I want to just begin by talking about words. So you have said that you're not mad keen on the phrase ethical fashion that is quite hard to pin down and define. You're all about fair trade. Do you want to talk to me a little bit about that and also to define fair trade for us just to begin with? I think certainly back in the day, starting People Tree, our model was really very much about fair trade. And, and that was about working with the most economically marginalised people in the so-called developing world, which meant going into rural villages, working with farmers, helping them to go organic. So being able to source and build the first supply chains in organic and fair trade cotton and going into village-based artisanal groups that put gender and environment central to what they do. And, you know, to be honest, ethical or the term ethical fashion doesn't cover that. Fair trade does. Um, you know, fair trade is a, I hate to use old development language, but it's a pro-poor agenda development 
campaign. You know, it is really about making trade work in the most beneficial way for the people that most need it. Ethical trade is incredibly important. It's about actually doing the common sense thing. It's about delivering basic human rights in factories. It's about sticking to environmental laws that we should all, we've all, our governments have signed up to adhere to them, but sadly do not happen. So whilst ethical trade should be the norm, you know, I really think we should be going beyond and above ethical trade. We should be going to a fair trade agenda, which is really about empowering the most economically marginalised people through our fashion. And also ethical fashion, even though I've always not loved it as a phrase because it's a bit clunky, it's now a buzzword so it becomes something people adopt that maybe they're not necessarily following through at every level. Yeah, I guess that's true as well. But I think, you know, certainly the first kind of ethical consumption model, which was, you know, very early 90s for those of us old enough to know. Um, that's you know, me. Was <laughs> nah, not you. Yes. Um, but I remember the Naomi Klein no sweatshops issue and you know what we're still there yeah but 20 years later yeah I think it is it's a we are still there and unfortunately you know the ethical meant it was a whole gamut of different issues from organic to animal rights to upcycling recycling uh you know green energy I mean it it just covered a huge area of topics which of course you know we need organic and recycle uh, very much living within the heart of ethical fashion today but I think that yeah it's a fabulous term you know I, I feel like I've, I've actually caved in I've kind of lost the battle I'm calling it ethical fashion but <laughs> my heart is is definitely about fair trade fashion I read that in the beginning you spent a lot of time trying to decipher fairer than what yeah that's right because I think at the time you know this is this is 20 years back looking at fashion you know what i had to do is i had to understand what was going on in the supply chain so i spent a lot of time going into factories going into slums meeting with garment factory workers and finding out what working for a conventional brand actually looked like what were they having to put up with on a on a day-to-day basis and you know i'd sit in their tiny room sometimes the size of your or my bathroom watching them queue in a hallway where they might cook rice and some simple vegetable or dal, standing in a queue behind 20 other people that we were waiting to do the same thing without even half a day to do their laundry every Mm. week. I mean, and I think that's what gave me the motivation. It also helped me to understand what a fair trade model could actually deliver that was so different. That's the key question. How can fair trade improve the lives of producers? And also, how can it be good business? Okay, well, that's, that's two very, yeah. very big questions. Okay, no, I guess so I'd like balance it. Let, 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 let's, let's start let's, with how can it improve lives? Yeah, so, so how fair trade fashion can improve lives is that it can create livelihoods and income in rural areas. So it basically, by having a job, it means that families are kept together. It means that the money then is going into local projects like schools, healthcare. You know, businesses then flourish because if you've got you know, 200 hand-weaving women then spending money in local shops. You know, you have a whole local economy that is then strong, it has a voice. And very mm. often it's it's just that, you know, it's the urban elite setting the agenda in big cities, in big towns, and the rural poor simply don't have that voice. So, you know, a strong economy allows for 
political participation. It allows for a policy that actually stands for women uh, and stands for people that live in rural areas. But keeping families together has really been a key for me. And when you look at the kinds of countries where, for example, people tree are working, and Pozu too now. And those countries are? India, Bangladesh, Nepal, Sri Lanka, for example. You know, what you're looking at is women often having you know, very, very poor rights. What Fairtrade can do is it can positively discriminate against women getting work at equal pay, giving them the opportunities to really use their work to open bank accounts, to improve their family, to rebuild their homes, to really you know, learn and develop their voice to be able to speak out for, for the rights that they need to deliver social change in their villages. And I think, you know, for me, that's really what it's about. That's what fashion should be and can be. That is what fashion should be, my goodness. Or that is what fashion production should be. I want to just mention the World Fair Trade Organisation and their 10 fair trade standards. And you talk there about the first one, which is creating opportunities for economically disadvantaged producers. I want to ask you how exactly you go about doing that. And let's talk about with regards to POSU. So first of all, for those listeners who know you for People Tree and might not be aware of this shoe brand that you're now leading, can you tell us what that is? Sure. Well, I joined Spencer Gull, the founder of Pozu, um, about a year and a half ago. And I think what we realised with this fantastic opportunity for not only the mainline collection, but also for the Star Wars license and collection that we have. Um, I can't in, believe you did that. I know, it's, it's cool. It's absolutely <laughs> bonkers. It's, it's just fantastic. But it's cool for, yeah. sorry to go off track, but it's cool for something that's not a giant big mega brand. Yeah. To be able to do yeah. a collab like that. Absolutely. I mean, to have something like, you know, the, the Han Solo sneaker and the Falcon sneaker and then this amazing line that we've developed for, yeah. for Mainline as well. It's, it's just it's bonkers great. You know, inorganic cotton, in fair trade rubber. It's just, it's great. Yeah, so joining, joining the brand... You know, it, it was really this question of, okay, how do we really spread the opportunity for an ethical sneaker? Because there are the big brands out there like Vans and Converse, and we would really like to be, you know, the go-to brand, but we weren't able to compete on price point. And so what we've done is we've built up the Sri Lankan supply chain, so using natural coir, which is the you know the hair of the coconut, the fibre of the coconut, as a foot mattress. Um, then we've got fair trade rubber and then organic cotton uppers for the shoes screen printed in a really great factory and I think for me it was basically coming to a country where I've worked with before Sri Lanka in this case but in the craft sector a little bit in textile you know using my experience working with Sven and the team because whilst I have textile experience you know, making shoes is a completely different area and one that I'm, I'm relatively new to and designing some fantastic collections that, that are now available on our website. So how does the way you make those shoes empower communities? I think the first thing is that the sustainable materials that we're sourcing ensure that a fair wage is being paid and a premium to for example the rubber tappers so an hour and a half down the road there's a community of about 400 people that are through the benefits of fair trade rubber getting a premium to build bridges clean water developing loans for example for their community as well can you just explain very briefly how those premiums work for people who aren't aware of the fair trade model Sure, yeah. The way that fair trade premiums work is that on 
every pair of shoes that we sell a bit of money goes back to the community that yep. the community then decide how they're going to spend self-determined it, yeah really important and Glass local up. exactly exactly so talking to the rubber tappers a couple of months ago for example the problem that they faced was that they had a, a river kind of cutting through the forest area which meant that women were going more than an hour and a half to kind of around come to work. It. They're going around it to get over this river. And so they decided that they wanted to spend part of the premium on building a bridge. Wow, wait. So, you know, it saves time. It meant that, you know, collecting water from a from a safe well um, was much quicker. It reduces carrying. It means that they, they can also they have a much more comfortable life. Let's talk about shoes because I write and talk and find out so much stuff about ethical fashion. I'm thinking about apparel and clothes. I think we actually talk less about shoes, and I certainly know less about the negative impacts on people and planet of shoe production. I read on your website this crazy stat that on average three pairs of shoes per person end up in landfill every year. Yes, it's, it's really quite horrible, isn't it? Cra- and then crazy I thought it's stat. me because I put in my husband's grotty trainers in the wheelie bin because I don't know how to recycle them. Yes, mm. and they're often a you know a very complicated combination of different synthetic materials, which which mean stripping them out and actually being able to recycle parts of them are, are very very difficult, if at all. So yes, I think I think that's that is a huge problem. I think in the True Cost movie there was a a little section about. Um, leather tanneries and and the huge impact that has to workers health in in those um, workshops and villages horrible absolutely disgraceful have you been there so i'm thinking about around the river ganges in kanpur i've I've been in similar tanneries just to basically to witness them um fairer than what in in bangladesh yes yes but not actually to kanpur um but but having said that you know i think using um, chromium-free leather is something that the brand's always had close to its heart. We're trying to now switch out of leather and develop more in organic cotton and pineapple leaf fibre, for example, yeah. because you know, those are alternatives. Having said that, we haven't yet got to the point where we've found a, a strong enough alternative to leather. And I've never felt comfortable, having done ethical fashion or fair trade fashion for the last 25 years, of using plastic shoes pvc i mean mm. it's utterly mad i mean if we look at the microfiber and plastic debate now you know clearly it isn't an alternative to leather actually i just went to the vna to the fashion from nature exhibition and they were showcasing new leather alternatives grown in labs derived from mushrooms but i thought this was so interesting they had an ancient ancient is the wrong word but they had a very odd victorian lacy handkerchief and then part of a dress that was made from pineapple fiber and i thought they just invented that how lovely yes and i think it's about not leathery these alternatives do exist they have existed in the past the question is how to commercialize these things i'm I'm going to go and see Susanna lee in new york um who's who's doing various exciting things she's amazing yes um with i'm looking forward to meeting her face to face Um, well she's growing Exactly, exactly. In the lab, yeah. if we even use the word growing, which yeah. is developing. It's future so in these, fab. So these are, these are coming through, aren't they? You mentioned that it has been so far difficult to scale and commercialise some of these fabrics. Let's just talk about the question I raised before and my double question, which was, what are the business opportunities for fair trade and how can we make it work? Do you want to talk about triple bottom line economics? Yes, I think it's much... Like the way I learned that phrase? Never <laughs> read of it before. I was like, make a note. It's a good phrase. It's a good phrase. Yeah, so triple bottom line, what does it mean? Well, it means that you make a profit, but you also deliver social impact and you deliver uh, something that is 
protecting the environment. So triple bottom line, people, planet and profit. Um, and of course, up until now, most fashion mm. manufacturers, retailers uh, have only been preoccupied with profit and profit at any cost. And, and that's actually the issue, isn't it? Mm. So, so I think you know, when I started doing fair trade fashion more than two decades ago, you know, we were actually developing the first fair trade and organic supply chains in cotton, setting out what the standards might look like in terms of craft and, and manufacture. We were also developing um, the market and the kind of thinking and awareness around why fair trade and ethical fashion was necessary. So doing a lot of media work, TV documentaries, made about six, you know, wrote about nine books, you know, and of course, you know, building up with friends and influencers like your good self, you know, a place where we can talk and we can create and galvanise consumer interest because civil society changes everything. So I think the costs of that have been tremendous. I've been very lucky in working with very, very committed teams of people in the, in the past and now um, that want to change that thinking. But clearly it's, it's an expensive thing. I think with today's designers coming at ethical fashion, you know, we have initiatives like ethical fashion forums new mm. initiative common objectives co's linking you know suppliers with buyers which i think is a really brilliant one we have um sustainable angle which means that you can procure sustainable materials which which really create a lot of opportunity in terms of design it's getting much easier for young designers as well to to access these things although yeah. it's still not entirely easy i do get asked often by students how can we get pinatex or how can we get mushroom leather I don't think it's quite so easy when you're a student, but yes, certainly with true. mid mid range brands, it's it's easier than it was. Yes, I think Offset Warehouse are another alternative for for smaller quantities, but certainly the minimum order quantities for um, designers is is a big issue. But it costs more to produce if you're paying higher wages and if you're using better quality fabrics. But what are the benefits for business? Because I think the risk of not doing good business and of causing negative impacts on people and planet are coming to the fore now and people are realising that's bad business. That's not going to win us customers. I think there's a very strong business case that you can make for sustainable fashion aside from risk, good risk management, um, which of course now is, is, has become a debate mm. with the um, UK Modern Slavery Act. But certainly in terms of customer engagement in terms of employee engagement even investor engagement we're finding that people are, are much more open to working with sustainability innovators mm. you mentioned the modern slavery act i want to talk about slave to fashion which you launched last year on international women's day it's a book and it's a platform and it's activism and it's fab well thank done. you love <laughs> can you tell us about that project slave to fashion was very much an excitement around the Modern Slavery Act, which which came into being in the UK in uh, 2015. And many of us who have worked with NGOs and trade unions and fair trade groups and, and then you know back in the Japanese fashion market or the or the British fashion market, European fashion market, we were just like, oh my God, you know, the term modern slavery is actually being used to describe all of the things that, that we have been used to, all of the social entrepreneurs have seen in terms of child labour, in terms of forced labour, um, excessive overtime, bonded labour, you know, suddenly there became a flag that we had felt was, was terribly old-fashioned to describe a modern phenomena, the thing that is actually keeping millions and millions of people down. And I think, for me, it was about being able to find and to use my network to bring the stories of 
slaves out to the fore. So the, the book covers stories about bonded from, in fact, bonded labourers, women who have been also moved through human trafficking into into either garment factories or into prostitution. Child labourers, for example, as well, were able to tell their story in its pages. But like everything, I find it important to, to really look at positive change. And so we were looking again at new types of platforms, for example, digital and otherwise, where Workers are using their cell phones now. Cell phone prices have, have mm. really come right down to kind of thirty dollars. You know how they're using their mobile phones to communicate and tell the story about injustice themselves. It's actually amazing how technology has changed that game, isn't it? Right. I think it really is. It's so empowering, and and so this idea of people to people communication and trade becomes something that we can all be part of. Having said that, you know, there have been tremendous movements in terms of accountability and transparency. The kind of social dialogue Mm. that many big brands have engaged with has been, I think, revolutionary. It doesn't go far enough. The modern slavery reports are... Yes. Yeah, so modern slavery reports still can be very much a kind of cut-and-paste job. I know that within the the government here and and some of the cross-party peers... Again, we're looking at uh, new types of initiative that can take the information and, and really make it much more consumer friendly, which would also have the the knock on effect of meaning that we could hold brands more accountable. I'm going to see the Baroness Lola Young this afternoon. So that would be a companion episode to this because she's working on amendments to the Modern Slavery Act because she believes it doesn't go far enough. But Safia, the numbers are astronomical. At the time that the Modern Slavery Act was passed in 2015 in Britain, and I should say we're going down that track in Australia right now, but at that time, 71% of CEOs said that they suspected there was probably slavery in their supply chain. 71%. Can you tell us about fashion specifically as opposed to all companies? How rife is bonded labour and modern Mm -hmm. slavery in our world? I think the stat now is 77%. And I think the reason why the percentage is higher is because people are, they're more aware that modern slavery is an issue and they've started to discuss it. And and that's the battle really that one needs to work through to deliver genuine change. Well, that's the beginning of it. So modern slavery is sadly the norm within fashion manufacture. I'm still looking at buying practice that means that, for example, despite the Rana Plaza building collapse and a, and a lot of very positive health and safety legislation around building work with the Accord, buyers are have reduced their prices more than they, they were two years ago. They're asking for orders three or four days, which which actually represents more than 10% more quickly than they were really? um, two years ago. I so what this means is people are being pushed harder, they're being paid relatively less the deal for workers is not improving and we we need to also be incredibly careful because what we want is we want a living wage and we want proper freedom of association within the factory environment it isn't enough for brands to say okay let's just introduce automation and robots clearly what we need for workers is to acknowledge that with a global growing population that Everybody needs jobs with fair wages and without that, development is not possible. Do you think that we're in danger of, I mean, I just thought of this in terms of my own work, that because I like to always find a positive angle and say, look what's happening, we're doing this, we're moving towards this, we're in danger of saying, look over here at all the good stuff. I didn't know that 
that figure had risen to 77%. Obviously, it's because people are being more transparent and looking more into their supply chains. But it's worse than we thought, not better. No, I, I think it's... Um, I don't see it as a negative. Mm. I, I see it as a positive. It's, a, it's looking at the truth. And with that comes the ability then for good leaders to bring their teams through that process um, to really understand more about their supply chains, where the vulnerabilities are. Look, you know, three years ago, people wouldn't have been having discussions with factories about sexual harassment and discrimination in the workplace. And now we're seeing that many NGOs are working together with companies, both with buyers, brands and with the local factories to set up schemes and systems that are anonymous so that female workers can mm. really genuinely report their instances of, of sexual harassment. So this is this is really new. It's also um, really complex, isn't it? I mean, I think that's what we have to remember, that you can't yeah. just solve this stuff in one, even one act of parliament. You know, we need yes. so much work to be done by so many stakeholders. Yes, yes. I think giving workers a voice has been the issue, hasn't it? And um, people haven't recognised the huge power that men have over women, mm. especially in the workplace. And we have a Me Too campaign, of course, you know, in, in, in our so-called first world, we've only begun to scratch yeah. the surface of, of what that might look like in, in supply chains. Yeah. You mentioned Rana Plaza. I wonder if you would just tell us how you reacted and what you did after that. I know you were on a plane, weren't you? Yes, that's right. Yes. Actually, I was about to have a meeting that morning with um, one of the largest trade union leaders, who just didn't show up for the meeting in Bangladesh in Bangladesh and I was on a plane coming back thinking my god what's what's happened and of course getting home and learning about the news it was of course shocking we'd had instances like Tazarine and Mm. and Spectrum years before but but something on that scale was just shocking Um, we started something called Rag Rage which collected money for the trade union that we were working with so that they could distribute emergency relief to rice and and, um, other necessities, um, which we we then went out and helped distribute. But, you know, for us, it was very much about telling the story also because this was very early days. You know, we were protesting in Oxford Street with other organisations like War on One, Clean Clothes Campaign, you know, people had locked themselves to the doors of Benetton because Benetton was refusing to accept responsibility. Well, it took them weeks and even months, perhaps, to admit they were their labels. Yes, yes, absolutely. So I think, um, you know, it was a shock that certainly galvanised international mm. media and consumers, but, but it also did something really powerful locally, which was that taxi drivers and um, you know, normal working people in Bangladesh and Delhi and uh, you know they, they suddenly became very strong in their solidarity of people that were vulnerable you know they were they were outraged and I think we sometimes we forget the component of what happened in the places where these these awful accidents and incidents have happened the atrocities and and the local response was just absolutely phenomenal mm. so I think you know we're entering a, an age of business and, and lifestyle collaboration, one where local workers and their better trade unions and brands and consumers work together. You know, there's a huge amount, I think, that is happening at so many different levels. Making modern slavery a thing of the past is what we should all be doing. And, and I think we have lots of great opportunities to do that. Let's talk about one of those great opportunities but also great examples swallows 
Could you tell us how that facility works in Bangladesh and how People Tree works with it and, and just share us a bit about that? And you know why I know about it? Because I watched Emma Watson doing a bit of a video when you took her there in 2010. Yes, when I took Emma to Swallows, we had a fantastic time. That was a project, a fair trade group that really embodied everything in terms of fair trade. It embodied craft skills, so hand weaving, hand embroidery. It embodied the strength of the women and the equality of the women and leadership of the women. And I think thirdly, this beautiful rural setting of Bangladesh. Um, that, Where you that is, don't have to go to the city and leave your children no, 600 miles away. The air is fresh. You know, people have their own kitchen gardens. They grow vegetables for that evening. You know, the kids walk to school and, and back again. And we built a daycare centre there as well, which is probably the first in Bangladesh. And I think People Trees Clothes, absolutely beautiful. Um, Emma designed some really great pieces at Swallows that sold well. Um, so I think a fantastic experience for her and also for the team at Swallows. So th- I think, you know, Swallows with People Tree, we were the first to, to get the fair trade manufacture mark to get fair trade guaranteed throughout the supply chain, uh, which really kind of celebrated everything that is that is great about fair trade. Before we finish, I want to go back to ask you how it all began. So first of all, where does this come from in you? Because you're so impassioned about social issues and you've worked so hard for so long. I mean, 25 years. I often speak to people who I think are veterans of ethical fashion who've been at it for eight years. Where does it come from in you? Can we learn a little bit about Safia as a kid? <laughs> Gosh, um, my father was Indian Mauritian. Um, he he died when I was seven. And my mum, I think... Well, she had three of us, I was the eldest, threw herself into social work, voluntary social work. And I think, you know, that that gave me a very early experience um, in kind of global issues. You know, she was working to settle refugees in, in our hometown. And what, Where did you grow up? In Berkshire. Yes, and it's just 30 miles or so from London. Um, and so what was really interesting is that we would be part of her work. We would learn about how you get secondhand furniture and build up a home and, and organise for kids to go to school or, or register with a doctor. And and then she worked with people with um, mental illness. So again, you know, at the dinner table, you know, we would have people that were mentally unwell. But that was an incredible experience, I think, for me as a child to really understand a little bit about global diversity but also some of the issues that were challenges to people to live and also about community engagement I mean I'm not sure how many young children do experience that different kinds of people from different kinds of backgrounds and how you can interact with them in a meaningful and real way you know rather than I don't know as a kid you kind of get told put some charging money in this envelope it's just a completely different way of thinking I think it is and I think families are genuinely changing and trying to use that as an opportunity to to educate their children in global issues and to Mm. feel that sense of what a global citizen really is Um, weren't your grandparents publishers and bookshop owners Yes, that's right, on my mother's side. They're a bit political. Yes, they were a bit political. Yes, that's true. My father's side too, they were, um, my grandmother was a sugarcane worker. So I, I, I mean, I have to kind of caveat that because growing up in Berkshire, we were, well, there were only two families that were of colour. So I kind of grew oh, up. right, it would have been super white a, there, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, really. Um, so I was kind of a coconut, you know, I was brown on the outside and white on the inside. I didn't really realise that as I was starting this fair trade journey, I was actually going back to my roots to to visit people that were very much like the, mm. the family, you know, mm. back in Mauritius. You know, they lived in um, simple houses with corrugated roofs and that's very much the kind of family that I, that I came from. Um, 
my father was um, educated and he, he came to Europe to study and became a scientist. And so, you know, so I had that yeah. opportunity. But I think um, what is interesting is um, I think we all now are part of a global family and we're becoming more and more in touch with those elements of ourselves that that are in fact a big part of the community of our responsibility mm. when we're considering, you know, how we spend our money, how we shop, where we work, you know, all of those incredibly important considerations that actually define our ourselves and our values and beliefs. How did you get to Japan and why? And via being a gorillagram business owner? <laughs> what? <laughs> true well, well it is yeah I was I was I started work at 17 I didn't go to uni and I was studying advertising and marketing whilst working at creative review magazine and I so I rented a, a desk in a shared office for lunch times and evenings where I started this tiny company because you know it's full-time obviously with the the magazine and you know it was just it was basically this gorilla gram service that which is what like a gorilla comes yeah, and knocks on your door it's goes, bonkers yeah so, <laughs> wearing a suit yeah so on valentine's day you could you could buy from me I put an ad in private eye and um the equivalent of kind of time out today um you could you could get a gorilla so someone dressed up in a gorilla suit um to deliver wine or roses or a cake <laughs> and you know listen I had 120 deliveries which doesn't sound like very much but for a kind of it was 18 right, year old yeah, yeah it, was, it was kind of impressive you know but managing the logistics of that was a nightmare I had gorillas running around Heathrow Airport it would never be allowed these days right you know and and the wards of hospitals and you know god knows where it's just completely bonkers but anyway but that says something about you Safi because that says that you think you can do anything you know that says if there's an idea let's do it I guess it says let's let's just try it let's just try something new if I but but there is there's a kind of a fun side I guess which is the which is part of the ethical side I think you know through both people tree and through posu it's been about you know making ethical fashion the best the the product with the most integrity you know fun and accessible and just I think that's so so important so you know we've spent a lot of energy over the last decades kind of you know, with short films, with books, with media, with documentaries, you know, making campaigns and blogs truly accessible. So, you know, I really would hope that people would find, you know, People Tree or Pose Zoo on social media and, and, and engage with it. And, and, and that would lead them on to kind of other elements of an ethical lifestyle. Because frankly, if it's not fun, it's yeah. not sustainable. Love. You began in Japan, is that right? So why were you there? And can you tell us very briefly about just the beginning of People Tree? Sure. So I went out to Japan with my husband at the time and um, I started uh, working. I was learning Japanese and then working for Amnesty International and then started working in the first body shop in Japan. Uh, Anita part-time. Roddick, best person after you. <laughs> she, she she's lovely that, like it's such an interesting great hug model. giver yeah great hug giver didn't yeah <laughs> she's just really really super adorable um yeah she was really sweet anyway uh, what was exciting was just understanding that you know a Japanese woman similar age to me who knew the body shop model who'd you know, perhaps travelled in the UK um, and knew what at that time the body shop stood for, loved the concept. They truly wanted something that was um, non-animal tested, anti-vivisection, you know, a fair trade 
and natural product. And what was really exciting in Japan was that there was a very, very new concept to Japan at that time, you know, ethical consumerism, signing up to a petition, you know, with Amnesty International in store. That was absolutely unheard of. And yet there was this huge appetite for it, which was so exciting. And that's really what motivated me to start Global Village and then People Tree from it. So early days was very much, you know, in, in my home, my spoken Japanese was kind of okay, but obviously my, my phone Japanese was atrocious. So I had a couple of university students working with me. You know, they would do a lot of the the important kind of phone calls. We, we would publish guides on organic living, vegan, vegetarian, how to recycle in English and Japanese. So, you know, kind of these early stage, you know, opportunities to really spread the word. And then from that, I started selling fair trade products and, and found very quickly that the product wasn't really suitable for the Japanese market. They wanted things that were really different in terms of quality and size. We needed more transparency behind the product. So from that, I really started developing relationships with fair trade groups in India and uh, Bangladesh and Zimbabwe at the time. I want to just finish up by asking about True Cost because... True cost is phenomenal. Everywhere I go and I meet people who find out that I'm in sustainable and ethical fashion, they will say to me, oh, have you seen the true cost? There's another thing in Australia which is based on a British show, um, War on Waste. That's another one that people always go, sustainability, have you seen War on Waste? But it's interesting because... Of course, I've seen True Cost, but it's interesting because it travelled so much. It's often people's first entry into this conversation and it changes their thinking. It's amazing. Yes, I, you're in it. Yeah. Fab. <laughs> I don't know what my question is. My question is, it's excellent. Please discuss. Yeah, I yeah. When I met Andrew Morgan, he was yes. I I think he came to me through my book Naked Fashion. He picked it up, and then I connected him with a few people. And then he went away and did the CrowdCube fundraiser and uh, or Kickstarter to raise the initial money for the film. And ashamedly, I didn't really get much involved with it because you know lots of people come to me and and say could you do this or that or the other and then he came back and said look you know I really think what you're doing is incredible we we need it to be part of this film and we'll follow four people around through the film so we ended up spending about a year and a half together we went out to Bangladesh and and did a lot of filming work in Japan and the UK and it was just the most exciting project and documentary and really the documentary that personally I'd always very very much wanted to make and he did the most incredible job um and up until that point you know we'd done about um five or six documentaries in Japan in Japanese but never anything in English and he and his team the Michaels were just phenomenal you know just great investigative journalists who are not shy very very well networked um and really managed to get such a broad number of issues from the brutality of how workers and their trade unions and representatives are put down to the whole sustainability issue you know i think more than 10 million people worldwide have seen it 10 million yeah that's amazing i want to give you a round of applause i'm gonna (laughs) thank you safia mini love that we got to have this conversation thank you thank you it's getting hard My parents feel that I'm defending you I tell them all that they are wrong Because I love you Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. 
you can get in touch there and I really hope you will I'd love to hear from you and you can also find links to my social media and finally if you're enjoying the show please head over to iTunes and subscribe you know what they say first in best dressed subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis so I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion the better Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you Because I love you